0: This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Our guest in the studio today is very special. You are going to be very taken by his story and by the things that he is doing now. And hopefully, by the end of our time together today, you will be very interested in picking up an incredible book. It is a wonderful read. Our guest is Shaka Singor, and his forthcoming memoir is called Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison. It has endorsements from a number of high-profile people, including Senator Cory Booker, the author of The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, Van Jones from CNN, J.J. Abrams, among others. What Shaka does is give voice to disenfranchise African-American young people. And I'm going to stop right there because I want him to tell you his story. It's been an amazing time for us really now to get together, sir. Um, you spent some time in prison as you tell your story in your memoir. Yeah. Um, what happened? Tell yeah, us.
1: So I, I grew up in the city of Detroit, um, during the height of the crack era, I got caught up in street culture. Around 14, I ended up running away from home uh, due to some difficulties uh, with, you know, my mother being abusive. And that led to me running away. And like a lot of naive uh, teenagers, I thought that somebody would take me in, care for me and raise me. And unfortunately, this wasn't the reality. Um, And like a lot of vulnerable teenagers, I got seduced into, you know, drug trafficking by an older, more seasoned street veteran. Um, Three years into that culture, I got shot multiple times. And um, what I didn't realize back then was that I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of that shooting. And so when I returned to my community, uh, I reacted like a lot of, you know, young men in our communities react. And I began to carry a gun every day. And 16 months later, I got into a similar conflict, and I fired four Fredo Shots um that, that caused the man's death. Mm-hmm. And I was subsequently arrested and sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison.
0: And you were locked up for, what, 20 years, I think you served?
1: Total of 19 years, seven of that in solitary confinement.
0: Okay, so when did you become a returning citizen?
1: So I was released from prison on June 22, 2010, one day after my 38th birthday.
0: And for the time that you spent in solitary, can you share with our audience what happened to lead to that?
1: So I got into a conflict with an officer um, and I was charged with assaulting a staff member and sentenced to an additional two years in prison and what turned out to be four and a half years straight in solitary confinement. Uh, It was in that environment that I began to really examine how I went from an honor roll scholarship student to one to be, uh, who wanted to be a doctor uh, to serving all my most promising years in prison. Uh, and it was then that I began journaling and really taking stock of my life and examining all of the many things that went wrong, including some of my poor decisions. And I realized that I needed to do something to turn my life around.
0: Tell me about your family, your mother, your father growing up before you... Literally made a really wrong turn.
1: So I grew up in a household that on the outside, looking in, looked like a model, middle class, um, black family. But unfortunately, my parents were going through some tumultuous times in their relationship, separating, getting back together, separating. Uh, and eventually, it led to them divorcing. But in the midst of this, uh, my mother was, was, you know, pretty uh, physically and emotionally abusive. To uh, you? Yeah, to me and my mm. siblings. Um, How many? Uh, it's a total. Of, my mother has a total of six. I have a total of nine, including step siblings. Um, but my mother and my father together have uh, six children. Um, and at that point, I just decided to run away and thought I was going to leave in one bad environment, going into a better situation, but unfortunately it got worse.
0: Before you were committed to solitary, People watch TV, and there are always these popular TV shows about what prison life is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sense is that's not even close. What was that experience
1: for you? I mean, you? It's, it's definitely uh, one of the most barbaric and inhumane environments you can imagine. Uh, what we've done in this country in regards to how we uh, choose to you know, deal with those who run to of the law is very unfortunate, very sad. Uh, in the early parts of my incarceration, we did have some programs that was designed to help rehabilitate and transform lives. Um, I was averaging a 4.0 in college um, prior to the passing of the 1994 crime bill, which took college and vocational training out of prison. So from that point forward, it just became one big volatile warehouse. Uh, And that's where we're at today. You know, uh, unfortunately we've, you know, chosen, chosen to invest more in building prisons than actually helping men and women transition Uh, out of prison successfully.
0: For many men incarcerated, and especially Shaka, for many African-American men incarcerated in America's prisons, the recidivism rate is tremendously high. How did you get out and not go back?
1: Uh, I made a decision that I didn't want to just be another statistic. And I knew I had a responsibility to my children and to my community. Uh, to right my wrongs, turn my life around. Uh, so I put in a lot of work, but also I, I just want to make a, a really important note that I have a distinct advantage going into prison that a lot of the men inside don't have. What was that? I was literate. Ah. Um, and, and literacy opened up the doors to me reading books like you know Malcolm X's autobiography, uh, which expanded my consciousness in a way that it d- demanded of myself to really read and prepare my mind and spirit for re-entering re- re- society. Uh, and also I had a skill set you know I've developed a skill set while inside uh, I learned how to write uh, through journaling, which led to me writing books and, and things like that. Uh, but ultimately, it comes down to determination uh, how committed you are to living a quality life and I no longer wanted to live in that barbaric environment um, but you know it saddens me to to realize that there are so many Young men and women who are actually getting caught up in the system and when they come out and want to do something better that there's not many opportunities available to them because people just aren't hiring if you have a felony, and it's hard to get housing if you have a felony uh I think Senator Cory Booker says there's over to the forty thousand collateral consequences to having a felony on your record so um you know I've had to work extremely hard and i'm I'm really fortunate and blessed to have been able to use those skill sets to create a life for myself on the other side of that 19 years.
0: How was your reentry?
1: It was difficult uh, in the sense that, you know, I came out to a new world. When I went to prison, there was no Internet. There was no smartphones. There were no tablets. Uh, so I had to learn a whole new language relatively quickly and adapt to society as it exists now. Um, you know, unfortunately, again, the literacy part really helped in that. Um, and and I mean it's been it's been ups and downs. You know, I struggled with employment the first few years. I had you know freelance jobs, uh, contractual jobs, which came through relationships. I couldn't get employment through traditional routes. Uh, but you know, being able to to write, you know, that created opportunities for me to do a whole lot of lot of things. And I've had some tremendous accomplishment accomplishments in the five years I've been out.
0: One of those accomplishments is your activism, working for. Men and women, especially the younger people who are in the situation or are in situations similar to yours. How did you find that you were going to be able to take the time that you spent incarcerated, channel that energy, take your journaling and turn that into mission and new passion? Because you're blowing up right now in a really good way. And that just doesn't happen for so many people.
1: Yeah, when I mean, when I when I before getting out, you know, I made a commitment that if I did nothing else that I would be a mentor in my community because I realized that there are a lot of young men and women who are super smart, uh, but who are going through real struggles in their household, which doesn't allow them to perform at the highest level in school uh, because they're dealing with so much trauma and emotional baggage. Uh, so I made that commitment very early on from the time I walked out of prison. Um, I went into schools and it was shocking that the first school I went into was in worse condition than the prison I left. Um, and that kind of ramped up my activism when I saw that our kids are being uh, educated or trained in an environment that's not conducive to them growing and evolving into successful adults. So, you know, that just fired me up, you know, because no kid should be educated in a school building that's unhealthy um, in an environment that's unsafe. And so that part of it, but also I knew I couldn't leave behind the, the men who I had grew up with in prison. And a lot of them suffer from mental illness. And we don't talk about that enough in the country, what's really happening inside prisons, especially in solitary confinement, where the rate of mental illness is extremely high. And those people are extremely vulnerable. And so I knew I had a responsibility because I had the skill set to tell that story and to really talk about what was happening there, to really, you know, give voice to those who don't have a voice.
0: You're a motivational speaker. Your story has inspired thousands and is likely inspiring our listeners right now. How, from where you were to where you are now, did you find your way to MIT, the Kellogg Foundation? and tell us about the atonement project?
1: Yes, yeah, so i um I have I, I just graduated from my fellowship uh, at MIT Media Lab, which was you know just an amazing experience to be able to use technology. Uh, as part of a restorative justice uh, project that I was working on called the Atonement Project. And the reason I chose that project, which was nominated for a TED Prize, uh, I also went on to do a TED Talk uh, two years ago uh, that turned out to be one of the top TED Talks of 2014.
0: I know you're sitting right here and we're talking, but more than 1.3 million people have watched your TED Talk. Let's let our audience hear a little bit of that.
1: When I entered prison, I was bitter, I was angry, I was hurt. I didn't want to take responsibility. I blamed everybody from my parents to the system. I rationalized my decision to shoot because in the hood where I come from, it's better to be the shooter than the person getting shot. As I sat in my cold cell, I felt helpless, unloved, and abandoned. I felt like nobody cared, and I reacted with hostility to my confinement. And I found myself getting deeper and deeper in trouble. I ran black market stores, I loan sharks, and I sold drugs that was illegally smuggled into the prison. I had, in fact, become what the warden of the Michigan Reformatory called, "the worst of the worst." And because of my activity, I landed in solitary confinement for seven and a half years out of my incarceration. Now, as I see it, solitary confinement is one of the most inhumane and barbaric places you can find yourself. But find myself, I did. One day, I was pacing my cell when an officer came and delivered mail. I looked at a couple of letters before I looked at the letter that had my son's squiggly handwriting on it. And anytime I would get this letter from my son, it was like a ray of light in the darkest place you can imagine. And on this particular day, I opened this letter, and in capital letters, he wrote, my mama told me why you was in prison. Murder. He said, Dad, don't kill. Jesus watches what you do. Pray to him. Now, I wasn't religious at that time, nor am I religious now. But it was something so profound about my son's words. They made me examine things about my life that I hadn't considered. It was the first time in my life that I had actually thought about the fact that my son would see me as a murderer. I sat back on my bunk, and I reflected on something I had read in Plato's Republic where Socrates stated in apology that the unexamined life isn't worth living. At that point is when the transformation began, but it didn't come easy. One of the things I realized was part of the transformation is that there were four key things. The first thing was I had great mentors Now, I know some of y'all are probably thinking, like, how do you find a great mentor in prison? But in my case, some of my mentors who are serving life sentences were some of the best people to ever come into my life. Because they forced me to look at my life honestly. And they forced me to challenge myself about my decision making. The second thing was literature. Prior to going to prison, I didn't know that there were so many brilliant black poets authors, and philosophers, and then I had the great fortune of encountering Malcolm X's autobiography and it shattered every stereotype I had about myself. The third thing was family. For 19 years, my father stood by my side with an unshakable faith because he believed that I had what it took to turn my life around. I also met an amazing woman who is not a mother of my two-year-old son, Sekou. Cool. She taught me how to love myself in a healthy way. The final thing was writing. When I got that letter from my son, I began to write a journal about things I had experienced in my childhood and in prison. And what it did is it opened up my mind to the idea of atonement. Earlier in my incarceration, I had received a letter from one of the relatives of my victim. And in that letter, she told me she forgave me because she realized I was a young child who had been abused and had been through some hardships and just made a series of poor decisions. It was the first time in my life that I ever felt open to forgiving myself.
0: In case you're nodding in and out or just now joining us, let's reset who's in the studio with us in case you're just joining us. We're talking to Shaka Singor. His book is the memoir, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison. He is a man who's giving voice to disenfranchised African-American young people across this country. As you've heard, he made a terrible mistake and paid a price for it. But as you're hearing, that's only part of his story. He's a motivational speaker today whose story of redemption has inspired thousands. He's a former director's fellow at the MIT Media Lab, a community leadership fellow with the Kellogg Foundation and the founder of the Atonement Project that helps victims and violent offenders heal through the power of the arts. And what impact has all of that had on you?
1: Uh, Being able to work in that space, it was just important for me to use a cross section of technology Arts and creativity to really create conversations around uh, reentry um, and, and restorative justice because art makes those conversations a little bit easier for people to handle. Um, and so I was excited. I also used that same model and taught a class for three semesters at the University of Michigan.
0: So now, when you walk into the classroom as as the instructor, the professor, let's say, yeah. which you were, and yeah. you've got your background, your story. How what is how how was that walking into that classroom? <laughs> well,
1: the first time I went to class, it was, you know, uh, uh, I was super excited, you know, obviously teaching at one of the top universities in the nation. Um, but the response from my students was overwhelmingly positive positive. and okay. to this day they're they're, you know, to see you know young people change their majors based on the experience of my class uh to be actively engaged in the process of reforming our criminal justice system. It's probably one of the highlights of my life in terms of my contributions to the community. And it was just an unbelievable experience. Like, I actually miss it. Uh, I do plan on going back. I have an open invitation to teach at the university whenever I want to. Uh, my life is obviously a little bit busy uh, with the, you know, the release of writing My Wrong. So, uh, but once we get through some of this stuff, I'll, I'll be back to teaching. The
0: candidates, at least on the Democratic side of the equation, looking forward, ahead to this election that's coming in November, have spoken volumes about the need to reform America's criminal justice system. As someone with firsthand knowledge of America's criminal justice system, if you could get to the front runners, the Clintons, the Sanders, the Trumps, the Cruz's of the world, what do you tell them needs to be done?
1: Uh, first, they need to undo a lot of the damage that was caused by the 1994 crime bill, uh, which uh, Hillary supported. Obviously, her husband passed and uh, uh, Bernie uh, Sanders also supported. So I don't know what Trump stands on the issue. I haven't followed close enough to see. Um, but I would tell them, you know, one of the things we have to think about is America is a country that takes great pride in being number one. Uh, but I don't think that it's anything prideful about being number one incarcerating more people than anybody else in the world and that the whole idea of being tough on crime is really ridiculous. Uh, we need to be smarter on crime. So uh, I would challenge them to actually invest in a way that allows men and women to come back as healthy human beings as opposed to um, broken human beings, which has been a model for the last four decades. Uh, so. I will only be convinced at that point in which they insert their humanity into it, as opposed to the politics. It's easy to say, "Let's release all non-violent offenders," but the reality is, all offenders or people. I don't even say offenders, but using their political language, ninety uh, percent of the men and women who are incarcerated will, at some point, return to society, whether they are violent or non-violent offender. And so, I would challenge them to use that language. You know, my life is a testament to what happens when we're given second chances. Um, an unfortunate system didn't give me uh, second chances, but MIT Media Lab director and Kellogg Foundation and people who saw my humanity as opposed to my statistics in my past. Uh, so I would, I would love to see one of them step up and be courageous and step outside uh, the political speak, the the safe speak of yeah, nonviolent offenders. Because the reality is, we have 2.2 million men and women in society, you know, from our society that's in prison suffering. Uh, and millions of families across the country who are suffering from having a loved one incarcerated.
0: Speaking of families, we've had an opportunity to meet yours today. Uh, What do you tell your son as he grows and is old enough to understand what it will mean to be an African-American man when he turns 18?
1: You know, actually, I'll be telling him far before he becomes 18. Uh, I tell him now, Uh, you know, one of the things, my nighttime ritual is we do positive affirmations because, you know, being a black man in America, you know, a black boy in America, a black person in America, you know, we're taking a beating literally and, you know, uh, figuratively. Um, And so, you know, I just remind him of his inherent greatness, you know, and the potential that he possesses, but also want him to be wise enough to understand that um, as loving and caring as you are, the world may not always reflect that back to you. And so you have to prepare yourself for that reality, you know, um, and the way that you do that is by empowering yourself, you know, in all the areas and aspects of life that matter. You know, so I'm preparing him very early on. He's four years old, extremely uh, super smart. Um, yes, he is. And we have real conversations, right. you know, and I think that's important for parents to do.
0: What do you want readers to take away from your book, Writing My Wrongs?
1: Uh what I really want readers to take away from my book is the power of forgiveness, the power of redemption. Uh you know, we live in a country that has a very strong religious foundation in terms of most people believe in something, some higher power, some ideology of of, of a you know, a greater good. And the cornerstone of those ideologies is redemption and second chances uh and forgiveness. And so to live in a country where when you ask people what do they believe or do they believe in anything, a higher power, and most people say yes. It's shocking to me that we've been so unforgiving of those who run to of the law, even if it was 20 years ago. And so what I would love for people to take away from that is if we, we are, if we're, really want the society that we envision, we have to be more empathetic, more compassionate, um, and more realistic about who we are and what we're capable of.
0: The book is Writing My Wrongs. The author is Shaka Sangor. It was a pleasure to spend some time with you. Congratulations on your success. Thank
1: you so much. Appreciate you. And your Thank son you is me.
0: adorable. <laughs> <laughs> adorable. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, myandalouscondo29, on Twitter. Or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.